Vamos a gozar, vamos a cantar, vamos a disfrutar, vamos a bailar. Somos Rey Latinos. Hola y bienvenidos a Real Latinos. My name is Ismail. This is Ron. How's it going? And this is Guti. ¿Qué pasó? ¿Qué pasó? And we are here to talk about Buena Vista Social Club. Yeah, Buena baby. Buena Vista Social Club, 1999. Uh, but before we get into that, let's just catch up and see how we're all doing. So, uh, Guti, ¿cómo estás? What's up? Estoy muy bien. Uh... So, ayer vi uh, the premiere of Rings of Power, you know, Ooh. after having watched Lord of the Rings, the extended trilogy in theaters. Dude, you're all I, I, Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was, I was ready to go. I was ready to go. Um, so, I guess what I will say is like kind of a mini review for the, the two episodes. Uh, it's definitely not Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. So, I think if you mm. go into it not expecting that um you should be you know you should you should enjoy it a lot more than you know people who are that being said um i know it's based on the appendices for lord of the rings so it kind of gives them a lot of um it kind of gives them a lot of like wiggle room to do like different storylines and stuff like that and the appendices they were written by tolkien but they essentially just add a little bit more color to the trilogy and they're 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 kind of like a timeline for the second and third age that's in there as well as like character descriptions, etc. So there's not like a whole lot of to work with there. And I guess nothing's confirmed, but Amazon had issues getting rights from the Tolkien estate to do anything else. So like a lot of people have been asking like, Oh, why didn't do, why didn't they do more of like the similar alien or, or other stories like that? And I guess mm. they had issues getting rights to that. So they decided to go with the appendices, because, um, you know, there is some relatable characters in there from the trilogy. So you get your little nostalgia bump. And you also get, um, you know, the ability to, to tell your own stories as well. Um, so for me, I think that the production and set design are absolutely beautiful. Like, top-notch. Definitely some of the best stuff that I've ever seen on television. Um, but wow. unfortunately, right now, I will say that... I don't really care about a lot of the characters in it. And the ones that I do care about are the ones that Peter Jackson already set up in Lord of the Rings, the trilogy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the, that's, that's the only issue I have right now. And I mean, I've already watched two hours of it. So, I mean, I feel like in two hours of, you know, the trilogy, we were already kind of invested in their story and stuff like that. So I don't two know. hours of the trilogy, they had gotten to the bar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But at least at that point, like the, the characters that had shown up, like it's pretty much like they're, they're pretty flushed out and you're, you're, you're on the journey, right? And yeah. here, because they're going to so many different little stories and stuff like that. And so many different characters, it's kind of hard to kind of attach yourself to anyone that who, who wasn't in the trilogy yet. So I'll say that. Um, but yeah, Morphid Clark plays uh, Galadriel and I I think she's really great, but she hasn't gotten like a whole lot to work with. So hopefully she gets more. And uh, I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Afro-Puerto Rican Ismael Cruz Cordoba, who is actually in the series and he plays uh, Aaron Beard. Got to give a shout out to uh, anyone, you know, anyone of Latinx heritage who, who makes it in a big series like that. So I'm excited to kind of see where it goes from here. It's I'm I'm not to the point where like a lot of the haters are like, oh, I'm never watching this again, or I'm just gonna hate watch it to make YouTube videos. Uh, I'm definitely still gonna tune in, uh, just because I love the franchise so much. And we'll I mean we'll see where we go from here, you know. So, but yeah, um, what about you guys? What have you been up to? The only thing I've that really stuck out was uh, I watched the most recent Father of the Bride. The the one with uh, Andy oh, Garcia yeah. and uh, Andy nice. Garcia and uh, Gloria Stefan. Um, it was fine. Uh, I mean, I've never seen the original Spencer Tracy one. Um, I have seen the the Steve Martin ones. Um, it was. I mean, it's pretty much what you would expect from from a rom com for the most part. 
but uh, the the representation was really good. Um, I particularly liked mm-hmm. that. Uh, Ismail, I know you've seen it. Yeah. Um, but um, part of the plot is the so they're they're Cuban American, uh, and their their daughter, the bride, um, is marrying a Mexican dude. And there is a, a bit of um, conflict between like Cuban culture and Mexican culture, which I thought was really cool. Because uh-huh. you know, to to a lot of people, like everything south of the border is Mexico. So yeah, um, and like I think I, it, they, I, they do a really good job of like showing like you know not all Latin American people are the same. You know? <laughs> like, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. completely yeah, someone, different. Yeah, I mean, if someone's Nicaraguan. I'm glad that they uh, did that because <laughs> it yeah, does get yeah, tiring so. for sure. Yeah, and I think there was even like there was a joke because the the wedding planner is um is white and like I think she makes a mention about um oh yeah we're gonna have like you know uh, guys in sombreros playing flamenco and Andy Garcia is like none of that is is my culture <laughs> yeah. um, so I I did like that they like added little little bits of that and there is also like a little bit of a twist on the story in the um and it's not really a spoiler because they're they're kind of upfront about it but uh, Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan decide to get a divorce at the very, very beginning of the movie. Yeah. And so that added bit of drama um, is actually, is pretty good. Um, but other than that, it's, it's, it's fairly cookie cutter. Uh, the one thing that got me thinking though, is, and I wanted to ask you guys, and if uh, any of our listeners want to like chime in on, on Twitter or emails, but um, what, uh, what, if any movie would you like to see like remade, but through a, a Latinx lens? Mm. They should do the conversation uh, from oh. Coppola. And then, uh, like, the conspiracy that they're trying to uncover would be uh, Operation Condor, uh, which That's is, super cool. uh, if the listeners don't know, Operation Condor is, like, um, basically the U.S. trying to infiltrate Latin American countries and uh, put uh, dictators in those countries, mm-hmm. um, which they successfully did. <laughs> and, uh, um yeah, that'd be that'd be super sick. I think that'd be really good. But anyways, the one that I thought of was uh, listen to the Letterbox show uh, not too long ago. Our Nino Slim and uh, and Gemma, and Nino, yeah. uh, they were talking to exactly. Paul Shear, and one of his favorite movies is Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And Slim said, "Yo, you couldn't remake that today because of technology." But I was like, "No, you know what? You put that somewhere in, like the Amazon, and like and have it be, you know, like like." Um, a Latino dude from the city and like a, a rural Latino dude kind of like trying to trying to get home or whatever. Honestly, you can um, do that anywhere as long as it's a rural yeah. area with like bad cell reception, you know? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Any, literally anywhere else. Like, yeah. Uh, but but I, I, yeah, I was like, I was specifically thinking of like Bolivia because I remember one of my professors telling me about how like uh, when, it, when he would go down there to uh, uh, to do research and stuff, uh, it would take him like two days to get to the nearest town to use a phone. Mm, um, so yeah, yeah, you could do something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of I guess another movie I could or two movies I guess I could pick up maybe something along the lines of like Citizen Kane or Ace in the Hole, but you put it in the background Ace of like in like an and like Latin America, right? And then you you can make the cast all you know Latinx, and then you know it'd be about maybe like. Could be it could be during the time like of a dictatorship or something like that, and how they they manipulate the news and stuff like that. Some something around those lines. I feel like that would be, you know, an interesting story to tell or Ace in the Hole is, is the perfect answer. That'd be yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That'd be really great. Oh man, well you stumped us there, Ron. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Ismail, would uh, I? I know you went and saw something last night. Would you? Would oh, you, go see? you saw you saw my letterbox. I went to go watch Jaws, the Jaws. Like it's the first time I've ever watched it ever. In my what? Life. And on the big screen. I watched it on the big screen. I watched it on IMAX. It was incredible. I'm so happy that, like, I or I'm happy that I did it, and I can't believe I've gotten this far without getting any spoilers for Jaws. Like, there's like things that are very obvious. Um, that like. Are gonna get spoiled because they're like film techniques, like that dolly zoom. Oh, uh, there's a shark in it. Uh, yeah, there's a shark in it. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a um, like the reaction shot when um, uh, what's his face, uh, Roy Scheider, when he's like throwing Chum into the into the ocean, and then Bruce comes up, and then he like he just has that reaction. That's like pretty iconic. Uh, you're gonna need a bigger boat, of course. Um, 
But like other than that, like plot points, I didn't know any of the plot points. And oh. dude, if you watch it right now, like it's like a mirror image of COVID and how it was all like uh dealt with. It is like yeah. a mirror yep. image right in the first yeah. half. The second half, not so much, because they're just out mm-hmm. on the boat. Because <laughs> it's an adventure movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a completely different movie. Um, but it's it's sick. Like, I really, really like Jaws. Five stars. Five stars for Jaws. So, <laughs> had, so had you never seen the um, the the scene where they're below deck, where they're sitting at the table, and, and Quint does his monologue? Had you ever no, seen his monologue never, before? No, never, never. Uh, that's one of, like, like yeah. top five film moments for me. It is really yeah, good. it's really I good, can believe yeah. It. When they're comparing tattoos, I thought it was hilarious. Um, It's just, it's just a great movie. Yeah, Jackie and I went and we had a great time, and um, it was just, it's just, it's Jaws, you know. Like, there's a reason why we still talk about it now. We and yeah, we've never seen movies the same way again. It completely changed the industry. Yeah, I remember like uh, I was listening to a couple podcasts about it, but like how the marketing behind Jaws was like. Mm -hmm never done before like it opened up in many many theaters rather than like sporadically uh across the country they just like opened it for like 450 theaters all at once which is like common now but uh back then it was like what the heck like um and it's like what made it an event movie Uh, i think it was like one of the first or the first event movie so really cool stuff really like jaws but yeah uh other than that so let's get into it. We are covering Buena Vista Social Club, nineteen ninety nine, directed by Wim Wenders. Um, apparently, he's like a really famous documentarian. I didn't know that going in, but um, he is, and uh, it stars the Buena Vista Social Club uh, music group. Um, specifically, Compay Segundo and Ibrahim Ferrer are like the two main uh, subjects. I feel like. Um, but yeah, Guti, how about you give us some background on, uh, when I used the social club? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to go a little bit into the music too. Cause I mean, both of them, I think kind of go hand in hand here. Uh, but for, first of all, the point of us, the social club is a, an ensemble of some of the best Cuban musicians to ever live. And it was founded in 1996. Um, the project was, was actually organized by world circuit executive, Nick Gold. Um, and it was ultimately produced uh, by American guitarist Ry Cooter, who also plays with the band, um, or with the ensemble, I should say. And the music is directed by Juan de Marcos uh, Gonzalez. Um, and it came about after, basically, they were supposed to do kind of an original African collaboration project um, that would join musicians from Mali and Cuba. Uh, but ultimately, that fell through, and they already had some of the musicians that are currently in the ensemble Uh, signed up to do it and so they went out and kind of found other you know forgotten artists and kind of brought them in and started recording and this was you know this album and this documentary was basically the fruit of the of those labors Uh, so the group is named after a members club in the Buena Vista quarter of Havana which was a popular music venue back in the 1940s Uh, the club was founded in 1932 at the time, the clubs were segregated. So there were Sociedades de Blancos and Sociedades de Negros, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Buena Vista Social Club operated as a black society, which was rooted in a cabildo. Cabildos were fraternities organized during the 19th century by African slaves. These societies ex- exemplified the remnants of institutionalized racial discrimination against Afro-Cubans. Not only did they operate as concert venues, but they also operated as places where workers could drink and play games. Some of the members actually did play there, um, including bassist Israel Lopez Cachao, Ruben Gonzalez, the pianist, also played there. So shortly after the Cuban Revolution of 1959, newly elected president Manuel Ruitia Yeo, a devout Christian, began a program of closing gambling outlets, nightclubs, and other establishments associated with Havana's hedonistic lifestyle. The Cuban government was rapidly shifting towards the left in an effort to build a classless and colorblind society, and it struggled to define policy towards forms of cultural expression in the black community, expressions which had implicitly emphasized cultural differences. As a consequence, cultural and social centers were abolished to make way for racially integrated societies. Bonavista Social Club was no more. Though the Cuban government supported traditional music after the revolution, favor was given to the politically charged Nueva Troa music, 
Pop music and salsa, style derived from Cuban music but developed in the U.S., meant that son music, which many of these musicians played, became even less common. Therefore, this is why many of the musicians were out of work or playing retired, as you see in the documentary. The music consists of a lot of popular styles from Cuba, such as son, bolero, and danzón. 20 musicians helped in the recording of the album, um, and the album was recorded in 1996 and released in 1997. In 1998, they played in Amsterdam in New York's Carnegie Hall, being their first fin- or their final performance with the full original lineup. The album won a Grammy in 1998, and in 2003, Rolling Stone magazine placed Bonavista Social Club as the 260th greatest album of all time. And since, in 2021, it was remastered. This documentary is a creation of those kind of few years, which you see by famed German director Wim Wenders, as Ismail mentioned, and was released in 1999 to critical acclaim. The doc received a nomination at the Academy Awards for Best Documentary Feature, and the album and film sparked a revival in traditional Cuban music and Latin American music in general. Some of the performers would later record their own solo albums with success, but success was fleeting for some of the most recognizable artists in the ensemble. Compay Segundo, Ruben Gonzalez, would pass in 2003, and Ibrahim Ferreira in 2005. Some of the members would continue to tour like Manuel Guajiro, Maribel, and Omar Portundo with new members but have not been active since 2015. And their band, I think, was named La Orquesta de Buenavista Social Club, so they slightly changed the name as well. But ever since then, the Buenavista Social Club term has become synonymous with the golden age of Cuban music from the 30s to the 50s. So now... Let's go to Buena Vista Social Club in Havana, Cuba. Wow, wow, wow. Very in-depth. So, Ron, why don't you give us a quick synopsis about this movie? So, since it's a documentary and uh, there's not really a narrative uh, that goes along with it, it's kind of just interspersed different performances on stage as well as uh, performances with each of the individual members and kind of like getting to know them uh, walking around Havana. Uh, and uh, then uh, towards the end they, they go to New York and it shows them walking around New York and, um, and playing at Carnegie Hall and visiting some of the sites like um, uh, like the Empire State Building and remarking on how small the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. is um, So, but that's that's basically it there's not really a whole lot um, yeah, to it it's pretty straightforward just a lot of documenting yeah. um, and speaking of the whole documentary uh the whole documentary genre. What's your uh, relationship with your Ron? Uh, which Ron wants to go first of uh, Wim Wenders? Uh, I said before I didn't know who this dude was. I know that he made Paris, Texas, uh, but I've never watched Paris, Texas. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, what's your history with Wim Wenders? Yeah, I, I don't have a history with Wim Wenders. Other, than, I've I've known his name for a really long time. I've I have a few of his films, uh, including Paris, Texas, in my watch list. But yeah, I've, I've this is my first of his too. Uh, I also have not seen any of Wim Wenders' uh, feature films. I have, however, seen another documentary he did. I believe it's on Yusujiro Ozu, if I'm not mistaken, um, where he just kind of goes and visits Japan and interviews uh, several of his co-workers and stuff. And I'll say this for sure, uh, the structure of that documentary is definitely very different from this one. But I, I highly recommend that one if anyone you know, likes Yashiro Ozu. But that's that's my relationship with one. Alright. So, now that we uh, talked about that, uh, Ron, how about you start us off? What's uh, What do you want to talk about for When I Meet the Social Club? Uh, I guess since there's not really a narrative, uh, you know, it, there's there's not really a whole lot to talk about as far as you know, like themes or or, or technique, as, as at least not that that I really caught. Um, but uh, uh, one thing that I I was struck by was, um, you know, since these people, for the most part, the the people that are uh, playing in the group you know, they, they were really successful and, um, and, and popular back in the day. And then, um, you know, like the world got in the way. And so now all these years later, um, giving them the, the chance to come back, um, I thought was really cool, but I, um, I, I couldn't help but think of like, um, like my grandpa, 
mm-hmm. and like and uh and and his like his friends and his brothers and stuff like that partially because um when Pio Oliva shows up on the screen i was like is that my grandfather because he looks like almost exactly with the mustache <laughs> and the glasses and everything like my grandpa just doesn't wear a cap like that but other than that like that's, that's my grandfather so i was a little taken aback i was like hey um when like back in 96 did did he take a trip to Cuba that i wasn't aware of but um anyway but yeah like uh, so I, I thought that was kind of cool because, you know, my, my family, we get together a couple of times a year in my grandparents' backyard and my uncle's a DJ, so we're always playing music and stuff. And particularly for me, seeing over the years, like my, my grandfather and like and his brothers and um, like uh, like my godfather and stuff, um, seeing them get older. But it's funny because like, uh, you know, they they kind of revert to you know, to the way they, I assume they were when they right. were younger, like, even though like now, now they're in their, their eighties and their seventies and stuff. Um, and so that's kind of what, what struck me the most about watching these, these people get to play again and to, to have the spotlight on them for the first time in, you know, 50, 60 years. Um, you know, like, you know, they're these little old men showing up in their suits and everything. And, but you know, like one, they've still got every ounce of talent that they, that they had. Um, and I would even argue in some of the cases, like, you know, a lot of times uh, when you're playing, you know, your emotion definitely has an impact on how you play. And I'm sure for for the for most, if not all of them uh, b- being brought back like this probably, you know, influenced, you know, like how much emotion they played with and everything. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I just I, I, I thought it was really cool how they uh, they kind of they, they got their due. And, um, and you could tell that they, they definitely, uh, appreciated it and like, we're, we're savoring every, every instant of it, especially at the end when they, when they went to New York and they're like kind of walking around and, um, and Pew is talking about how like, oh, you know, like I never thought that I would be here and this is such, you know, like, this is so cool. And <laughs> I, I did think it was kind of funny cause he, he said like, oh man, I would like to come back and bring my wife and some of my kids. It was like some of your kids, <laughs> like, which, one, <laughs> which ones are you going to leave out? Oh um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking about while I was watching the movie. Uh, and what about you, Lutie? Yeah. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of start back a little bit um, and kind of just like talk about my history a little bit with this. Well, not with the film itself, but I guess the music and and why I even like watch this film in the first place and why I even got to that point, right? To to even recommend it for us. Um, so like. Back in 2002, like my brother had just graduated college um, and he was living out in Long Beach. And when I went to his apartment, you know, he, he, you know, there's quite the age gap between me and my brother. He's like 15 years older than me. Um, And so I've I've always kind of looked up to him. And and when I went to his, when I went to his apartment, one of the first things I saw was a poster of that, you know, of the iconic, you know, album where Ibrahim Ferrer is walking down yeah. the street. And I was just like, who the, you know, who the heck is that? And my brother uh, played me that, some of that music. And I've just been completely hooked ever since. Uh, and it was actually, you know, during the pandemic when I kind of found myself, you know, going back uh, to movies um, and I had discovered the Criterion Collection. I like at that point, I had no idea what it was. And when I was looking through their catalog, like the only thing that I knew was like, you know, oh, they have a documentary on Buena Vista Social Club. Like I have to, you know, I have to pick that up. I have to watch it. So that was actually my my first criterion. But anyways, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, we might as well just talk about the music because it is a music documentary, right? Yeah. Um, and man, like I, the amount of times I've listened to this album is crazy, man. Like. That, I mean, there's there there isn't a time that you'll you'll find me uh, listening to a song from Buena Vista Social Club without actually you know having a cigar in my hand or a, you know at least like a <laughs> glass of rum and but uh but yeah the I mean the music's just amazing man like it's the perfect type of music that you can just listen at a bar a cigar lounge and it also has kind of you know, it talks a lot about like just stories, you know, personal stories. It's very personal. I think like one of, I forget the the guitarist's name right now, but um, who's a comp or uh, I think his parents were campesinos or they had, you know, been farmers uh, or I think they also played as well. He kind of talked that one song, I think it's called La Carretera. Like it's literally 
like kind of a day of him going out and getting limones and stuff for for playing and stuff like that. So um, I I just absolutely love the music and and actually one of the funny things too is there's a bar down in L.A. in Hollywood called La Descarga. I don't know if you guys have ever been out there, but um, they play very similar music. And so anytime I'm down there, I always have to drag my friends because it's like you know the only the only time I can get a taste of this unless I travel outside of the country is there, right? I mean, I'm sure there's other places, but at least for me in LA, like that's my place. But I was gonna ask you guys, so like, I guess what's your history with the album, and also uh, if, if any, and then kind of what some of your favorite songs are, and I guess on top of that, because I know you guys are both musically inclined and you've had some experience in the area, like. Did you see anything in the documentary itself that you thought, you know, like, oh, hey, like this is I can relate to this because of my musical musical experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it goes into one of my points um, that I wanted to talk about. It's um, the difference between recording and performance energies. Um, I thought that was really, really great documented uh, or really greatly documented because. Um, uh, but to answer your question, I. I have no background with one of social club whatsoever. Um, with Afro-Cuban music, I do have a lot of background with it. I, um, I played in jazz band and our jazz band, uh, since it's many, many Latinos in it. Um, yes, we played like big band stuff, but we focus a lot on like Afro-Cuban, um, Latin jazz. So, uh, like I'm very, I'm very familiar with the genre. Um, but I really liked how they were recording uh like they they were they were recording them recording the album um and they were just uh you know they were in the recording environment it's a very specific environment that they're in um where like you're trying to get it perfect uh every single time because you know you have to do like like a million takes most like one but like basically you're you're there for perfection right in the recording environment but then when you're in the performance uh which another thing like the editing between the performance and the recording environments i thought was really good um but like with like you'll hear it when they edit like when they edit it from going from recording to the performance of the same song um the energy from the musicians is completely different when they're performing it rather than recording because now when you're performing it's not really about the perfection of the song but of course you're trying to be as uh, good of a musician as possible but um at that point it's just about having fun and about making sure that you uh you know are present in the moment because i feel like you could really feed off the energy from a crowd um in order to have a different type of performance every time even though it's the same song so i just really like that i really like because uh, live performance does have like this really magical quality to it where um you just it just feels different it feels really really good um and i you you could definitely tell that between the recording and the performance um uh in in the documentary i don't even know if that answered your question did i answer your question <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean this is the reason why i wanted to cover this because yeah. i wanted to kind of get your guys's experience with it because i mean those like things that you just mentioned are things that i don't i didn't pick up because you know i've had like small school you know band experiences and stuff like that but nothing to the extent that you guys have so that that was great insight how about you ron yeah, so I'm I'm a little bit older than you guys, so I have a very vivid memory of how big this album was when when it came out. Um, I I have a distinct memory. So there used to be a Tower Records on Beach Boulevard in Buena Park, and I used to drive by it, you know, I don't know, a dozen times a week. And so on the side of the building on Tower Records, uh, they would always have gigantic versions of like of album covers of whatever you know like was was popular at the time. And I remember driving by and seeing this album cover like every day for for what seemed like years. Oh, um, and I know like uh, I'm I'm positive my grandparents had it on cassette in their car. I don't really remember listening to it at the time. Like I, I might have heard it, but I, I don't really have much recollection of it at at the time. I was like I was God, what was I twelve thirteen I think when this came out. So I was really into I was in like Smashing Pumpkins at the time. Oh. I wasn't you know, super into um uh Afro-Cuban you know, like, music. I, I had 
Well, I, I had heard like a lot of like Latin music like as a kid growing up, but I was a lot more focused on you know like trying to be Kurt Cobain at that right, time, right, right, yeah. you know, like anything Moving beyond to that. Seattle. Um, I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't come back to that until until much later. But um, so I hadn't actually never heard this album until I want to say I don't know like eight years ago. Um, I was I was house sitting for somebody. And uh, I was like going through their CD collection and like you know um, copying wow. all the CDs that I didn't have onto my. The computer. truth comes this out before streaming. <laughs> yeah, this is before streaming was was widespread. So, um, but yeah, they had this album, and so it was, I remember like how big it was. I remember the poster from the side of the Tower Records, and uh, so it became one of those that I would put on a lot while I was studying in, in college, um, and also too like I know I mentioned to you guys in the um, in our private messages. Uh, the, I was already a big fan of Ry Cooter, who's the guy that like kind of got everybody together. He produced it. He plays guitar mm-hmm. on it. Um, I so he um, the reason that uh, he him and Wim Wenders got together to do the documentary was because he had done the music for Paris Texts for Wim Wenders. I believe a few others too, um, but more prominently, he's done the score for a lot of uh, Walter Hill films, uh, um, like Streets of Fire and stuff like that. But particularly, the reason that I came to him was from a movie from 1986 called Crossroads that Walter Hill did. So, uh, which is basically uh, the Karate Kid, but with blues music rather than martial arts. So it's Ralph Macchio. He's a young guitarist. And uh, he takes, uh, he's like a, a janitor at, um, at like an old folks home or something like that. And Joe Seneca is an old blues musician. And they're in, they're in New York. And Joe Seneca wants to go back home to Mississippi. And so Ralph Macchio kind of like breaks him out if he'll teach him like, you know, how to play more blues music and stuff. Uh, and so the, it's kind of like a road trip movie, but the whole time Ralph Macchio's character, like he's playing guitar and, uh, Ry Cooter is the, the one that's actually like playing the music that Ralph Macchio is mimicking on, um, other things. So that's, uh, how I kind of like came to him and then I put two and two together that like, you know, he got, um, you know, he got the group together and everything. And one other thing, like I did like though that, um, you know, like he's, he's the resident white dude, but <laughs> I, I, I appreciated in the documentary that like all of the musicians got a spotlight except for him. Like he kind of, right. like, he brings up the, you know, he um like how he brought everybody together and stuff like that. He talks a little bit about like the production and the history and everything. And I mean, they definitely show him like, you know, accompanying them, but there's never really a moment where it becomes the Ry Cooter show. It's very, it's very respectful to the, the other musicians and, you know, definitely focusing on their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh but yeah and as far as like favorite songs um i think probably probably uh dos gardenias or maybe chan chan um i've been it kind of all runs together because i've been listening to this album so much leading up to to watching this movie it's um so when i'm at work i i usually have my airpods in but i'm usually listening to podcasts Uh, i think maybe one time a co-worker caught me dancing around to the opening theme for the movie mixtape but other than that i don't really like yeah i don't really listen to music too much but um so this week i've I haven't had my AirPods in. I've been playing this album, like on the speaker, and uh, and so a couple of my coworkers are like, "What are you listening to? Like, what's you know what's up?" And you know, like, they've been dancing around and everything. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun um, getting into it. Nice, it's amazing, dude. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, like like you said, like even this music, even this music, like I've written too, like kind of like their softer songs that aren't as high beat. Like I I used to just like write. Um, you know, whenever I was in college or whenever, like, you know, I'm writing my letterbox review sometimes for inspiration, you know, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's great, man. I love it. Uh, I do have a question for both of you. Uh, is not the only one with questions here. Um, do you play any instruments? And if so, uh, what genre do you enjoy playing the most? Not necessarily listening to, but playing the most. Uh, I can... I can go first. Uh, so, <laughs> so I learned to play the recorder when I was in second grade. Here we first go. song yes. was Hot Cross Buns. Here we Hot go. Hot Cross Buns. Absolute jam. Uh, and then after that, I actually played the violin for a little bit. Um, but I, I ended up transitioning schools, and I was using kind of a violin owned by the school. So, And my parents just didn't have the money to, to buy me one. So that kind of dropped. And then I went to the trumpet, which was the only reason I did is because one of my friends at the time, he, um, his dad was a kind of like a famous local, uh, trumpet player. I forget his name. Um, and, 
and essentially, so we just both got into the trumpet. And so while he was getting lessons at home, I was getting lessons at the school and the music teacher we had was not very good. So like there was one concert where mm-hmm. I just went in and kind of like pretended to know I was doing the notes on the, on the this trumpet one. and kind of just followed. <laughs> yeah. So, Hey man, but in a band, no one's going to catch that. So I was good, oh. dude. Uh, and then after that, um, I ended up playing the snare drum for a little bit. Um, trying to learn the basics and I would, I never graduated to the, uh, like, you know, the full drum set, but I did play the snare drum. And then eventually like when we did like orchestras and stuff, I did like the timpani and like, so I think for me, ultimately, like if I would have continued with it, I would have definitely been like a percussionist. Like that's, I love, I love hitting things. So that would have been great. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, as far as like playing genres, I mean, I can't really, I can't really tell you. I mean, maybe I would have been more classical music. I don't know anything that's got a lot of drums. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would. Maybe, maybe, maybe rock. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, but rock's kind of wide. I don't. I don't honestly, I don't know what. <laughs> I would play I'm music. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I would. You know, I I would do it just for you know the cool like the cool status. That's pretty much it. I see. Rod, how about you? You you're a musician, no? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, my, I, I've dabbled in in a few different things, like, yeah, uh, but uh, ma- ma- mainly mainly guitar. Like, I've got an acoustic guitar sitting right next to me, and I've got two electrics hanging up on the wall right here. So, um, I was I was pretty obsessed with it in my my teens and twenties. I desperately wanted to be, you know, like a, a guitar hero, um, <laughs> the guitar hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I using the orange um, button. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've, you know, I, I mentioned in, I, in, in the Coco episode that, um, you know, like I was growing up, I was really into, you know, like hard rock, like Van Halen and Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. Um, so it's, it's been a while since I've gotten together with my friends to play, but you know, we, when, when we were plugged in, we played a lot of like, like social distortion, mm-hmm. um, and like Green Day and Foo Fighters and stuff like that. Um, when I'm by myself, if I'm just like plucking around on an acoustic guitar, um, I, I've I tend to like to play like more more folksy stuff. I see. Um, like I've been really into uh, Jason Isbell uh, recently. Um, like a lot of like finger picking and stuff. Especially because I'm not very good at it. That's the thing that I'm like <laughs> the the worst at. So like I kind of like um, try and get better at it. But I also like doing like um, like whenever I pick up a guitar, one of the first things I do is like I'll play the stairway to heaven the piano. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, well, I, like other than the Godfather theme, like I'll I'll do like um, I, I play like. Uh, like TV show theme songs, or oh, like sick. like I play like a little bit of like the Harry Potter music, or like uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or uh, or I like doing like like the horn riff from Beyonce's Crazy in Love, or like like the piano intro from uh from uh, California Love by Tupac, like stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like I I like um like mixing genres, I guess a little mm-hmm. bit. Like one of the things like so I'm I'm super into you know like rock music, and I was really into like um like punk and metal and then like also like pop punk and alternative and stuff like yeah. that. So whenever I hear uh, like pop music or hip hop or whatever in my head, I'm rearranging it as like, like a rock song or a punk song or like, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Like, or if I hear something like, uh, you know, like if I hear a rock song, I'll, I, I tend to like, okay, like how would this sound if it were like slowed down and like really like jazzy or like if, like if it were R and B or something mm-hmm. like that. So that's kind of what I'm into. I see. Uh, well, for me, I've been musically involved for a long, long, long time. I started playing the piano back when I was like five or six years old. Um, and that was just like classical training. So classical piano, uh, not jazz. And then I started playing trombone in the fourth grade and baritone in the fifth grade. Um, uh, and uh, along with the baritone, I learned the tuba and the trumpet. But um, ultimately, like after all these years, uh like I, I, I started teaching piano when I was in high school, um, specifically cool. classical piano. But then I got really into playing like almost any genre of music that was around in high school. I I mainly played the trombone by then. Um, and I played in like all sorts of things. I played in uh, all the jazz bands that were happening in the in the valley, in the Imperial Valley. Um, I was... Uh, you know, I was an honor band. Uh, we got to play in the orchestra for a bit. Um, so that was fun. And uh, yeah, I uh, I was in a banda sinaloense with my brother. My brother basically started it all up. And that was probably like one of the most fun that I've had playing in a long, long time. Because uh, the music is just like 
out of this world. I really, really love Manos and Elements and um, shout out to Joaquin <laughs> for for uh, <laughs> starting that all up. Um, but yeah, like that that's been I think that's been my favorite genre. I did get to play uh, in my undergrad with the orchestra, the Columbia University Orchestra. They I mean, those guys are phenomenal. And um, I was just really lucky to be able to play with them all four years. And uh, that's when I got really into classical music, um, you know, like Stravinsky or Mahler and things like that. Um, I guess like the genre that I most liked playing, uh, I guess it's a toss up between jazz and Manas Nalwense. Uh, but classical music was so fun, too. I don't know. I just like really playing music, man. Like it's just, it's just really, really fun. At one point, I was uh-huh. thinking about being a musician instead of, you know, <laughs> uh, going to to academia. But um, ultimately, I decided to to study, um, and I'm doing my PhD in computer science. But uh, you know, uh, I hope I never stop playing. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my whole journey with uh, playing music. Um, but let's keep on going. Let's keep on talking about when I reached the social club. Uh, Ron, uh, what's your second point for this uh, for this talk? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess one of the other things that I was really thinking about was um, so I said uh, in the in the pseudo synopsis that uh, it intersperses. Um, them playing on stage with them like practicing in you know like houses and stuff mm-hmm. like that um with also them like walking around and just kind of like hanging out around uh havana and stuff and i thought that was really interesting because it uh it, it gave a look into what you know at the time contemporary cuba mm-hmm. um and it was you know like like all the cars like i'm not really a car oh, guy yeah. but like one of the opening shots there were all those classic cars I'm like oh man and like realizing that you know like you kind of think of it as like oh like this is something out of the 50s but like no this is you know like the late 90s mm-hmm. this is the turn of the century and like that's you know like still you know the way that people are, are driving around but um yeah just like seeing the people seeing like you know like when they're playing dominoes like all the dogs on the streets right. um uh so you know it was it was just a really cool look into into life especially because when you know if you look at it as like when this came out uh you know like the united states and, and cuba didn't exactly have the best of a relationship really so <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah so um you know i i think for a lot of people seeing this documentary especially at the time this is probably like the only real look that they got into you know into you know what it was like to be in cuba at the i time. mean right from the beginning i remember they were looking at photographs and uh the photographer he mm-hmm. took a picture of um i forgot who was uh, castro. yeah castro with abraham lincoln yeah uh no he yeah had, he had a picture of fidel castro uh, at the abraham lincoln memorial and he named it david and goliath and i was like oh mm-hmm. my gosh like this is yeah like they're deep like it, it was it was deep during that time of um you know the u.s and and Cuba, like all the things gotcha. yeah I, yeah i thought you were talking about the the other one where they're golfing but oh, i think yeah. it's like yeah, the yeah, next 20 yeah. shows or something like that yeah yeah, gotcha, gotcha. yeah chain gastro or golfing and there's like which one won? It's like chain <laughs> but he or <laughs> no he's, he's, he's a chain yeah. like castro win yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah yeah it's uh it's a really uh it's a really interesting like time capsule and look into into Cuba for sure uh Guti, how about you what's your second point for the movie yeah, so so actually, one thing I wanted to mention too, with what Ron was saying, I think uh, something that I saw while I was researching the film is uh, Ray Cooter ultimately got fined by the U.S. like twenty five k for what he did in Cuba. Really? Yeah, he actually got fined after like releasing everything, like because of the fact that he wasn't supposed to go there. I think he ended up uh, because of the you know the relations. I think he ended up mm-hmm. going through like Mexico, and then that's how he kind of made it yeah. over to to Cuba, but. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think the second point that I have um, is so I so I think I hear what you guys are saying as far as the structure goes, um, and how you guys like the intercutting. But I just just being like the history nerd that I am, I just wish that they talked about more of like the social and political context <laughs> of everything, along with like kind of like all right, well, this music that each of these musicians is bringing to the ensemble, like you know, how, what, what are its origins, right? Like, where did it come from? Like, how did it come to be? And I think like, I mean, they obviously interviewed 
the main individuals of the group. And I don't, I don't know if some individuals just plain out declined because they didn't want to be a part of it or something like that or didn't want to be shown. But it would have been nice to, like, get all of them because, I mean, it is 20 people that are that are yeah. especially you know, a few more of the women too on the ensemble exactly exactly so that was kind of a thing that i you know i kind of wish and i was like man like i wish this just would have been like a docuseries honestly mm-hmm. like i don't know if that was a thing you know uh when this film came out if there were you know that i form. think ken burns was the only one yeah it. really yeah yeah oh yeah ken burns how how am i forgetting ken burns like that shame on me but uh yeah so i i just wish that they would have done that um, and I, I mean, like basically what I found for this episode, what I said in the historical context, like none of that was really in the, in the, in the film itself. So I wish it would have expanded on that a little bit more. Um, but I get it that it has like, a small run time, et cetera. Um, and there, I mean, they basically were doing this on, on a whim, literally, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, I also kind of wish too, that they would do full songs. Like I get that they they're doing the kind of yeah. like the intercutting and stuff, um, and it makes sense. And especially as Miles' point, like definitely kind of like oh wow maybe you know maybe I I looked at this the wrong way. But for me, like I kind of you know if I'm listening to a music documentary or I'm watching a music documentary, I just wish that I could kind of hear you know a full length track. Uh, and for me, um, I wish like they kind of showed more of the the crowds and stuff and like going wild. I know that there's a couple shots in Carnegie Hall and stuff, but I wish they would have shown more of that because like there's one I I, have, I don't watch a lot of music documentaries, but there is one that I watched called uh, Jazz on a Summer's Day, um, and like the prominent artist that I can think of on there is Louis Armstrong, and they show like full length songs on there. They show more of kind of like the crowd that's there and stuff like that. Obviously, they don't go into interviewing each of the artists like they do here, but you know it just would have been nice to kind of get some more of that action so you can kind of like soak in the environment and the concerts themselves especially since those were like the only two that they had together right mm-hmm. um as a full group so i don't know how i mean i don't know if you guys felt uh about the intercutting or or more about the intercutting that you guys have to say uh, other than you've already said yeah i mean like, i've I've watched a lot of stuff like this so like i'm, I'm kind of used to it it's kind of what i was you know expecting from it there's concert films where it's just, you know, like a straight performance, which I would love, I would love to see just an uncut, you know, um, film of, of that Carnegie mm-hmm. show. Uh, but, um, but yeah, like I, I, I wasn't really, uh, surprised that they, they did it. They edited it the way they edited it. Um, it might have to do, I, I don't really know much about Wim Wenders. I didn't know that he was even a documentarian. Like I was surprised when, when I saw that he was the one that directed this, cause I, I know him, you know, even though I've never seen them, I know him from narrative features. So, um, I, I so I wonder if maybe like this was a little bit out of his wheelhouse and he was kind of just doing it maybe as a favor to Ryan Cooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but that might have something to do with, with the, the structuring of it, but I, I didn't really mind it though. It, um, you know, it was, like I said, it was kind of what I was expecting from something like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this leads in perfectly to my next point, uh, or my second point. This not to be a Debbie Downer, you know, but uh, I didn't really like the way this documentary was presented or shot because, um, like, there are some nuggets of like of ideas of to make this documentary, like, in my opinion, really great. Um, because at one point I remember they're talking about like, oh, okay, this is the grupo está bien olvidado, but they're all super good. Like, estaba bien chingones, but not no more. Like, everyone's, like, they just went their own separate ways. I think it would have been so interesting to see, like, like the documentary looking at their peak back when they were, like, the shit, you know? Then, afterwards, why, What what's the reason why, like, they waned in popularity so much? You know, like, if they were, if they were as big as, like, uh, as they, like, talk about in the movie like why don't they talk about that time you know and then show the progression as to like what happened um to the uh to the group and then if the if the reason is because of genre like what happened to the genre why um why is it that it wasn't as popular as it was before i think it would have been also really interesting to talk about like the afro-cuban influence like after like before or after when i was the social club like the type of influence that it had on specifically American jazz, because it is insanely like, uh, 
permeating all of uh, American jazz, specifically with Dizzy Gillespie. That's like the one that's most uh, yeah. that's most obvious, you know. Uh, he's super into bebop. They called it like Cubop when like he was, uh, you know, like with Mantec and stuff like that. But um, but like not just that, you know, like Juan Tizo uh, from Duke Ellington's orchestra, uh, Tito Puente, Paquito de Rivera, Chucho oh. Valdez, like. There's so many really great uh, jazz players and uh, that use Afro-Cuban uh, rhythms and music specifically. You know, everyone talks about the clave. But, um, like, I think it would have been so cool if they would have talked about the peak of the band, why they waned, uh, where they all went, which, like, the, the only thing they really talk about is, like, where are they now? And let's make a concert. That's basically the whole documentary, right? And I just thought it would have been way cooler if they were like, where were they when they were at the peak? Where are they now? Like, how did they get to where they are now? Um, and then also talk about the background about the music that they did and what kind of influence that they that they had or that they they gave um, specifically with Afro-Cuban music. Um uh, like I, th- I thought, I thought this documentary could have been way better, honestly, like way, way better. Um, but like, I mean, it's cool, like what they have. It's just, I felt like it could have gone above and beyond what it ended up being, you know. Um, like I, I'm like really disappointed, honestly. Like when I, when I fired this up, I really thought it was gonna be like, because like I, I again, I don't know anything about this dude, Wim Wenders, right? But I remember before I started it up, he had, uh, like on his letterbox, uh, Paris, Texas, and I've heard so much about that. So I was like, all right, right. so if this filmmaker is like, if he's like, you know, very well known, he's got to be for a reason, you know, and uh, so let's see what he's got, uh, with when I was the social club, and it was just so disappointing. Like I felt like it was legit, like phoned in, and there's also like this whole kind of like weird white savior complex happening of like. Right, Cooter being like, "Oh, I want to record these dudes, so let's just record them," you know, and like for me, and it's just like this is kind of weird, bro. Like <laughs> I, th- I thought it was like a little, I don't know. I, I just thought, I it, I guess it, it just wasn't. It's not my tempo to to borrow from Whiplash. Uh, like I just, I don't know. I I wish I could have vibed with it more because like, Afro-Cuban music in general is incredible, specifically like how it's used in American jazz ensembles, like the vamping, the vibing, like the improvisation uh, that you get from this is just like incredible stuff, but it's just nowhere really talked about in terms of its influence outside of the band itself, which, you know, I get, you know, like if the, if the documentary is about the band, um, I guess you can make it about the band. I just thought it would have been so much nicer to hear like the expansion of like who influenced the band and who did the band end up influencing? And, like, how did the genre permeate, like, other cultures? I think would have been incredibly impactful. Um, and I know you, y'all were talking about, uh, Guti said, like, oh, I wish it was, like, a docuseries. Um, and then uh, Ron mentioned Ken Burns. Uh, Ken Burns does have a jazz docuseries. Um, and yep. I remember he got straight up, like, uh, called out. Because in, like, those, like, I don't know how many hours, like, 19 hours... Uh, mm-hmm. like he like barely, if at all, talks about Latin jazz, and like how influential it is in the whole genre of jazz of of American jazz. Like it's incredibly influential, but they don't really talk about it much at all. And um, yeah, so it's like really really sad to see, like, Wim Wenders like big shot didn't do it. Uh, Ken Burns also big old shot didn't do it. Like, what's going on here? You know, like, it sucks. Um, so, yeah, that's my second point. Uh, but not to be a downer. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, Ron, how about you? Since you called me out, <laughs> what are your final thoughts uh, and your, okay. your review and your rating? So, um, I do, like, a lot of the things that both of you just said, I I, I feel the same way about. Um, I I, yeah, I'm, I was already a fan of Ray Cooter. So, and uh, he, in his own music like just his solo albums and stuff he focuses a lot on social issues um a lot of his stuff is very like folksy but um has a lot of um 
like like jazz and blues and like all sorts of different um, types of genres mixed in. He he plays with um, a ton of different uh, players from you know like a bunch of different genres and stuff. So given that he tends to focus on social issues, I I was a little bit surprised to see that there wasn't more of that. Like you, I mean, like they they mentioned Castro and Che a couple of times, but that's pretty much the extent of like the political yeah. commentary. And they only talked about for like five minutes in the beginning or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it and it isn't really in depth. It's really, like it was really like, hey, they don't like this each other. Is, don't <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, like that's that's kind of it. Um, so yeah, I was a little surprised that uh, there wasn't more of that. Um, yeah, especially with the length of, of of the doc. I mean, it's not like overly long, but with an hour and forty five minutes, um, yeah, I I kind of expected it to have more to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that being said, I mean, I. I didn't get a white savior vibe mm. from it personally. I mean, I think that might be because I know a, quite a bit more about Raikou's yeah, background yeah. and stuff. So, I mean, I know, um, you know, like a lot more of, of the other work that he's done and everything. Right, so right. to me, it's just like, I know he, he just wants to play with, with great musicians. He, he wants to try everything and he wants to play with the best musicians. So this, mm-hmm. you know, it, this is just another, another cog. Right. Thing. Yeah. I didn't know anything about um, that. Yeah. As a documentary, like it's it's probably about about three stars. Like it's it's not that great. However, I enjoyed the heck out of it. Like it it was so All much right. fun. Like one, the music is fantastic, and then two, like I said, I had so much fun seeing uh seeing these older musicians getting getting their day in the sun, and like you could tell that they were they were just enjoying themselves so much. So, uh, I'm I'm at four stars. Hey, there it is. Four stars from Ron. Uh, Guti, how about you? The you picked this movie, so what what are you giving it? Yeah, I just want to thank you guys for taking this journey with me down the Kula. I mean, like I said, this music really means a lot to me, and, and this is why I wanted to do it because I wanted to hear your guys' opinions on the music itself as well as as the documentary. So thanks for taking this yeah, trip with pleasure. us and researching for our historical context section. I did see that Rykuder, you know, he he's played, you know, he's he has a love for roots music and. You know, he has done genres like Tex-Mex, Hawaiian, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, he, he's definitely been involved in there. And for me, it's kind of hard. Something, I guess, you know, day, today's day and age is a little hard with social media is like, in you know, figuring out what someone's intention is with something. Right, yeah. And so for me, like, you know, I don't know what his intention is, but like Juan de Marco Gonzalez, I think he said in, in the documentary or maybe it was one of the extras, uh, on the Criterion Collection disc, he's like he makes the point that like, hey, these artists were big before Ray Cooter got here, or any of these, you know, Nick Gold or any of these people got here. Like, right, they just had been you know forgotten. But you know what? I'm glad as someone who lives here in the states and you know as as Nicaraguan, because like my even my parents didn't even know who this group was. I mean, they all they you know they knew that Nicaraguan, uh, you know, when they were living in Nicaragua, my mom's. Um, grandpa would uh would always bring discs uh from kua because he would go and visit and you know these musicians were on those discs right but she i mean she didn't know like those are the you know those are the people she's listening to so she didn't even know like these groups or these artists still existed um so for me like someone who without right cooter or these people would have gone and done what they did and at least like make that album and also you know even though the documentary is not great at least you know, put something to film. So hopefully it gets preserved and we have some sort of historical archive of these musicians that a lot of them are no longer with us. I mean, it just, it really, you know, it really means a lot to me. Um, again, even if the documentary isn't that good. So I, the first time I watched this, I did get a little bit, um, without knowing Ray Cooter's, you know, background or anything, I did get a little bit of the white savior vibe. Um, but this, you know this next time that this not now knowing that information and seeing it i didn't feel it as much it's uh, maybe it's still there a little bit but not as much for me um but i the structure of it definitely kind of stuck out to me this time um watching it again so i think i'm at three stars but the music will always be five stars in my heart without a doubt yeah wow wow guti bringing down the average um i guess i'll go i mean i uh yeah i mean yeah i'll, I'll wait for everyone else <laughs> yeah um 
yeah like i so so as you know like i i was just like really disappointed with this um i really was expecting something much more in depth uh when we didn't get it you know and i was just uh kind of bummed out i'm I'm having a tough time rating this i i think i think i'm landing around like two and a half stars but but i think because like whenever they're doing the actual concert i think that's great you know like i think that sounds great the uh the venues are gorgeous i mean carnegie hall is is so so beautiful um um and like them playing there it just looks amazing and like seeing the sold out crowd was also really nice um so that kind of saves it from uh, it, it saves us from going from not bad not good to just good you know i'm at three stars uh i'm also at three stars for this movie i think it's good i think it's honestly i think it's just fine um but the the music itself does bump it up half a star for me um it does a whole lot of the heavy lifting, and I mean, I also now that I know that Red Cooter, like his whole background, I didn't know anything about this dude um, until Ron was expanding more about like uh, and with the about the like his whole vibe is and what he likes to do uh, musically. So, um, but yeah, even with the whole Red Cooter stuff like resolved, I still, I, I don't know. I I, I think she, I just think it's, I'm so disappointed. That's what it is mainly. Um, it could have been so much better, but you know, we got what we got. Yeah. It definitely would have been a completely different thing if they would have had, you know, like a Cuban director. Oh yeah. Like I, you know, like the lens would have been. Uh-huh. Or if different. like, I don't know how much, uh, Red Kuda works with this room Wenders dude, but, uh, I feel like if they got someone that has already done like a music documentary in the past mm-hmm. to do it, I think it would have been a lot better whether it were to be like a strictly concert documentary or like going like like i suggested you know going into the the peak of the band and then like uh seeing the influence that they gave and the ones that they had and uh basically just giving a a, like a big picture about what the band is and what the genre was um i would have been way more satisfied but unfortunately i'm just kind of disappointed kind of lukewarm ah unfortunately no i feel you i mean the hit that i mean the history nerd of me definitely wanted more of that but you know it looks like we're gonna have to look to other material to hopefully find that history yeah. you know yeah. so yeah that's disappointing uh but uh but uh if you want to reach us uh you could email us at reallatinos at gmail.com that's r-e-e-l-l-a-t-i-n-o-s at gmail.com uh, or reach us at one of our social media handles. It's at Real Latinos uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you about this movie, any other movies that we already did, um, any movie that you'd like to see on the show. Uh, please come out and uh, reach out to us. Uh, so, and with that, uh, our Latino approved recommendations for today uh, is the SoundCloud of Tono No Mata. That's T O N O space N O space M A T A space uh, no space after it. that's it. Torno um, Mata. Uh, uh, that is my brother Joaquin, and he makes music. He makes really great music. Um, I highly recommend you listen to the song Function, and he makes the music for our podcast. The Torno Mata, who created the theme song for us. Uh, uh, and with that said, yeah, check out Torno Mata on SoundCloud. Um, and with that. We're going to our next pick. So thank you, Guti, for the pick for when I was the social club. We were in Cuba, and now it's my turn. I'm taking control of the plane. I'm the captain now. Where are we going? Um, so there's a little movie from 2018 that I'd like to spotlight. It is from none other than the beautiful country of Chile. It is the absolutely grotesque animation horror movie La Casa Lobo, The Wolf House. It is absolutely... I mean, it's... It's it's insane. Like, I... I, Okay, so it's it's directed by Cristobal Leon and Joaquin Cocina. Um, They co-directed this movie together. Uh, it's an animation movie. It's stop motion. 
but it's stop motion unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, I'll get into that next week. But uh, um, here's a quick summary about what the movie's about. Uh, so the log line, or like the main line is, once upon a time, there was a country within a country from where nobody could escape. Um, the synopsis reads, Maria, a girl from Colonia Dignidad in Chile, a kind of sectarian community tyrannically mastered by the ruthless Paul Schaefer, a German madman, religious fanatic, and child predator who would end up turning the place into a torture center at the service of the military dictatorship ruled by Augusto Pinochet, is punished for having lost three pigs, so she decides to run away and take refuge in an abandoned house hidden in the forest. I mean, this this movie is this movie is crazy. Like it, it's again, like I said, it's it's stop motion unlike I've ever seen. It is very very uh, disturbing. <laughs> I would say. Um, I can't wait. Uh, yeah, and the uh, another yeah, and one. I highly suggest <laughs> uh, looking at the the story of Paul Schaefer in Chile. It's really it's it's really disturbing. It really is. Um, but I think it's a good idea to read up on just a little bit, like read like a paragraph or two of what's going on there uh, before watching the movie, because they don't give you explicit context on it. But no, like I remember I read up on it before I watched the movie and it really, really enhances what's going on. So I highly recommend you do that. Also watch it with uh, headphones or watch it with the best sound you can. I highly recommend you do that because... I mean, you're gonna have nightmares for the next week. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it, what a what a picture. So uh, I'll wait until next week to to get into that. Uh, to watch La Casa Lobo, you could check it out on Canopy. So with a library card, you can uh, stream it for free. Um, also free on Tubi, Tubi TV, uh, the streaming service for the people. Um, it's free on there. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube as well. Um, uh, last time I watched it, I forgot how I watched. It. I'll check my letter box tag later, but um, yeah, it's it's for free, so you have no excuse. You gotta watch it; it's incredible. Um, so with that, uh, thank you so much for listening uh, to our episode on One of the Social Club. Um, make sure to give us a like, rate us five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. Share this with your friends. Um, and subscribe so you can get notifications every week of when we drop a new episode uh, and catch up on La Casa Lobo for next week. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, adios y hasta luego. Bye-bye. Real Latinos is a podcast written, produced, and hosted by Christian Gutierrez, Ron Jimenez, and Ismael Villas Molina. Mixed and edited by Ron Jimenez. Artwork provided by Elizabeth Jimenez, Ron Jimenez, and Ismael Villas Molina. Original music provided by Tono Lomato. Muchas gracias y hasta la próxima. Apocalypse Now, but instead of like the the Vietnam War, ah, Shingo. It's not Vietnam War. Which yeah, war? Just, or was? Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, I was about to look ignorant as shit, but. <laughs> I'll cut it. I'll yeah. Cut it. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll restart. I'll edit that to make you look super like you know I what know, you're talking about. I know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, but instead of the Korean. Digo, puta madre. Korean. <laughs>